Good morning, everyone. On behalf of the elders and the board of management and ACC, the church itself, I would like to welcome my brother, my spiritual brother, Neville Gosman, to the front. Thank you all. Welcome. I'm going to pray over our brother here this morning. Dear God, our eternal Father, search me, Lord, and know my thoughts. If there's anything that would hinder this prayer between my brother and myself, cleanse me of any unrighteousness, Lord. On behalf of our congregation, Lord, let there nothing be between us and you, O Jesus. Anoint Neville this morning, Lord, with your Holy Spirit. Let it wash over him like anointing oil. Mm -hmm. That every thought, every deed, every word be spoken to the glory of Jesus Christ. For it's in his powerful name that I pray. Amen. Amen. Yes. Thank you, Brother Murray. You know, they say that third, third time is a charm. Uh... Some of you would know that I was pastor, I arrived here, having pastored in Dartmouth way back in 2004, and I began a 12-year ministry here. Our children kind of grew up here in Kings County, senior pastor at Sussex Wesleyan, now called Discovery Church, and then we just moved down the road, finished there and got a phone call. A uh, little teaching time at Sussex Middle School and taught there in the public school system and then uh, was eight years at Penobscot and then I left uh, to go back home. I, I was gone for 27 years having grown up at Brunswick Street, left and like everybody was different. You know, when you come back home, they see you as, you know, the 22-year-old that you that they always knew, snotty-nosed kid. And, uh, and then you come back, and you've got like four kids. I'll talk about them a little bit later. And uh, the youngest of which graduates uh, next year. And I'm thinking like, wow! But Kings County, Sussex, this whole area was home for them. Uh, God has been good, and here we are, potentially, on August the eighth, you will determine my future. <laughs> so uh, I, I've got to be on my best behavior. Uh, there, there's a resume that was uh, sent a long time ago when uh, the elders asked me to consider. And uh, then there's, that's the, the formal good behavior resume. And then if you want to talk to my beloved wife and get her resume of me, uh, you can, the strengths and the weaknesses. But it's good to be back here in the area. I'm trying to remember the first experience, the first spiritual experience I had. And I think back, I could have been four or five years old. And there are three things that kind of come to my mind. The first is laughter. Uh, the second word that comes to mind is pants. And the third that comes to mind is sleeping. 
laughter, uh, my cousin, I was just, remember, I'm just four or five, and it's a little bit sacrilegious. And in the old King James, she pulled out, my cousin, uh, the reading of the Tenth Commandment in the old King James, and the word wasn't donkey, and you can remember what the three-letter word is. And I couldn't believe that's such an offensive word. And I got to laughing. I found that was quite funny, a little sacrilegious. But I was four or five years old, so don't hold it against me. And then pants, pants. Uh, they had a competition. It was a Sunday evening. Bring all your friends to church at Corbett Avenue Wesleyan Church. And my cousin went there. We were at Brunswick Street in the morning, but we'd go down to visit my grandmother in Barker's Point, and my cousin would bring us to church, and it was jam-packed, standing room only. And I remember being up front and aghast that the two pastors who were there had a little competition as to who could bring the most people in. And the losing pastor would get their pants cut off. And I thought, like, oh my goodness, wow, this is like incredible. And then I fell asleep, the third word. <laughs> and I remember being roused from sleep uh, later on. And these are like my first experiences. Well, to, to your credit or to God's credit, uh, my, I still laugh in church. Uh, I, I still... Um, I still fall asleep once in a while, okay? And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. You're, maybe you had a, a, a busy Saturday night. Uh, uh, but I've yet to, in my experiences with God, I've yet to see somebody cut with a pair of scissors, a pair of pants off in a, in a, in a, in a church service. Uh, Come back next week. Come back next week. Yes, there we are. Um, but in all seriousness, in 1990, a book that would go on to sell 8 million copies was written. Uh, incidentally, in 60 different languages, it's been translated. Uh, it was entitled Experiencing God. And uh, the main writer, Dr. Henry Blackaby and his son, uh, Richard Blackaby, they went on to, to write this particular book, Experiencing God. And really, it's about experiencing God for yourself, which is really the theme of what I would like to speak about. I would like to read a particular text about someone who experienced God for uh, himself, and from that, draw some principles, because really, if we're not experiencing God for ourselves, and Dave did a wonderful job, because he who is the Holy Spirit takes the experiences of the Father, makes them known to us. If you haven't experienced God, and if you're not experiencing him Deeply, on a regular basis, you are living below your spiritual potential and what God has for you. And so I want to spend a little bit of time talking about experiencing God for yourself. Here is the text upon which we will speak for a little bit. Blackaby, in his book, Experiencing God, said, Many people have grown up attending church hearing about God all their lives, but they do not have a personal, dynamic, growing relationship with God. 
So Isaiah chapter 6, known as in the NIV, Isaiah's commission, we're going to read it here, chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. It starts like this, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. High and exalted in the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs. These are angels. The word seraph is flaming one. There were seraphs with six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another. And thank you, Dave, for bringing that I'll tell you a little bit about God's work in that particular song. They were crying to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices, the threshold and the doorposts shook. The temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips. I live among a people with unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. I welcome my brothers and sisters online. I greet you in the name of the Lord. You are here by the Spirit as my brothers and sisters are before me. This is a pivotal message because it will give an indication, a little bit of what it is that, by God's grace, you will have to consider on August the 8th. What I say here sets a foundation for who I am I can't tell you everything, as my dad, the late Sterling Gosman, Reverend Sterling Gosman, would say, you know, Neville, don't tell him everything. <laughs> okay. Whatever you stand before the people, leave, the, leave them with a little bit of a, a, a taste so that they, they come back. And there are all sorts of stories about what God has done and how God has done it. But there are two key things that are absolutely critical that I cannot live without and in the churches where I've pastored, I have, I have sought to emphasize these two things. The power of the word of God to move people where they need to be. And the power of the spirit to enable them, enable them to do what it commands. The power of the spirit and the power of the word. Those are two key things. And here, here you will see an emphasis on those two things. But first of all, a little background on Isaiah. A couple things. First of all, Isaiah is, is sometimes called the evangelical or the evangelistic prophet. 
Jeremiah, known as the weeping prophet, God said, you're going to prophesy and no one will ever believe your ministry. What a horrible ministry. He's called the weeping prophet, Jeremiah. Isaiah is very much like an evangelist for the Messiah. He came along about 250 years after King David. King David's son, Solomon, had built the temple. The temple is there. It's going to be destroyed in about 200, 300 years by the, the Assyrians, okay? And, and, or, or they would threaten it, and they would take 10 of the 12 tribes away. But Isaiah is prophesying just prior to that. The temple is still there. It will not be destroyed until the Babylonians do it. But he is speaking more about the coming Messiah, evangelizing about the one who is yet to come. Out of Isaiah, we get great uh, texts like Isaiah 53. He was bruised. He was cut and he, uh, like a, a bruised reed, he was gentle. He wouldn't snuff out even a smoldering wick of a bruised reed. There was nothing in his appearance that drew us to him. He was just a normal everyday Joe, speaking of the Messiah, and they missed him. From Isaiah, you see these great texts like Isaiah 9, for unto us a child is born. Isaiah 7, you know, we have, you know, the virgin will give birth. How is that possible? But Isaiah is the great evangelist of the coming king, and no one speaks about the coming king in evangelistic purposes more than Isaiah. Isaiah also, although his ministry was powerful and effective, it ended horrifically. You know what they did? Jewish and Christian writers and historians seem to think that this true whole this story holds true. They at the end of his prophetic ministry of about 50 or so years, they wrapped him up in a sack and they found a hollow tree and they stuffed him with the sack down in the middle of this tree. And they sawed him in two. Not like sideways from top to bottom. And in Hebrews, the list of heroes of the faith, chapter 11, it talks about people being sawed in two, and Bible scholars seem to think that the writer of Hebrews is alluding to the death of Isaiah. Experiencing God for yourself, first of all, principle number one, experiencing God fixes, and I use the word fixes not in terms of gaze, but it fixes in terms of repair. Experiencing God fixes your focus from problems to praise. The word of the Lord says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne and exalted in the train of his robe, filled the temple. There is national mourning in the year that King Uzziah died, and there's mourning. But notice the quick shift. Because when God is in the picture, when the spirit begins to move, there is a repair of what it is upon which you're focused. 
There is a fixing of your focus from the problem to the praise. And notice, in the king year that King Uzziah died, and that was mandated as a time of national mourning. His experience with God begins in the context of moral mourning and sorrow. And as the author describes the gloom that was part of the community of Israel immediately following the death of Uzziah, God shows up and he turns problems into praise. He began well as king, King Uzziah did. And it says of him, it says that he followed the ways of his grandfather, great-grandfather, King David, because King David had become the standard. But at the end of his life, he he became proud and arrogant, and he did something that only those from the tribe of Levi, from the line of Aaron, were allowed to do. He offered... consecrated incense and because that only belonged to those who were from the tribe of Levi God struck him down with leprosy it doesn't really matter how you begin it's how you end that matters and the Bible says this in Chronicles that tell us about the story. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died and lived in a separate house, leprous, and banned from the temple of the Lord. And people were mourning that. I wonder if you sometimes feel separated from the Lord. I wonder if sometimes you feel like Uzziah, that you have done something that you regret and you wonder how long it will stick to you. You wonder whether there is a spiritual leprosy upon you. You have, you've entered into a particular crisis, a particular problem. You've entered into a bad news phone call. You've entered into debt, and you don't know how you're going to pay, but there's a problem, and, and, and you are preoccupied with the problem. But something happens when you experience God. God repairs something. He repairs your preoccupation. Remember when Jesus talks about not worrying and be anxious about nothing? Remember when Jesus says, you know, worry, don't worry. You can't add a single day. You can't make one dark hair gray or vice versa. Don't worry about all that stuff. Seek first the kingdom of God. See, the problem is, And you may think it's about mental gymnastics and, you know, positive thinking. It isn't. That's not what faith is about. You may think it's sticking your head in the sand with a different perspective on your problem. You may think that the shift from the year that King Uzziah died to all of a sudden I saw the Lord is just kind of like some, you know, point that you just want to talk about, but that's not really the issue. It is, and I'll tell you why. Your greatest threat isn't your problem. Your greatest threat when something bad happens is your perspective on the problem. 
because it's your perspective on the problem that determines your reaction. Your, your problem isn't the problem, it's that God is too small compared to the issue. We have four children, 27, two years apart. My wife's an administrator. Two years apart, 27, 25, 23, 21. And uh, the oldest son, we'll just call him Josiah. <laughs> that, is, that is his name. He was probably six or seven years old. And all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, I heard this ear-piercing scream. And I'm not sure if I ran in first or if he ran into our bedroom, but he began a period of three or four months of horrific nightmares. And he would say, whether real or just in his mind, he could hear, he could feel the darkness in his closet. You've had children with nightmares. But one of the times when he ran in, and there he is, he's telling me about it. It's probably two in the morning. He's telling me about it, safely nestled in between Donna and me. And I said, well, well what is the, what's the verse that you're learning? Because they went to elementary and middle school, Christian school, what's the verse that you're learning? And he said, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9. Oh, I said, okay, go to sleep. We'll talk about that some other time. Now, he had no idea what dad was thinking, but I knew the verse. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9 says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not, do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. A few days later, ear-piercing scream again. And I said to him, Josiah, what is the verse? What is the verse? Joshua chapter 1, verse 9. I said, do not come in. Uh, seriously. Do not come in to the bedroom again. And for a week or so, we would yell it out back and forth. Have I not commanded you? Be strong. For the Lord, you're and courageous. For the Lord, your God, will be with you. See, Josiah's problem was his perspective on the problem. And after a few weeks, and I remember the day with tears streaming down my face where there was a scream and I woke up and the reaction is to run. But I said, okay, this is the teaching time. And I remember hearing him down the hall quoting the verse by himself. There's nothing that creates more joy for a parent. When what it is that you're trying to do gets transferred. We as moms and dads are like, in a sense, 
We are their first experience of the Lord. And when it's transferred from dependent on me to dependence on the Lord, there is this perspective change. God was fixing his focus from the problem to the praise. And brothers and sisters, there's a, there's a shift that takes place in the very first verse from the death and the humiliation and the destruction, spiritual life of Uzziah to let's look at the Lord. The year was 1922 and we still sing it once in a while. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know, the best part of the Lord's Prayer is at the end. Thine is the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. So Isaiah, in spite of his problems, even his own problems, in spite of the national mourning, in spite of your problem, notice the shift in verse 1. From the death to the glory of God, I saw the Lord. The second principle that I want to emphasize is this. And really, that gift of mercy that God brings us to through the power of the Spirit that we might see who God truly is, how much more powerful than he is than our problem. The second emphasis is the power of the word. Because experiencing God releases, releases the power of biblical truth into your life. I counted and I estimated I got maybe 35 to 40 sermons in the 10-month time we have together. And really, you can't do a whole lot of technique and, you know, special juggling and planning and, you know, let me execute the great gigantic vision of Atlantic Canaan Community Church. You can't do that. 10 months and it's not for me to do but I'll tell you if you obey what I share from scripture like the devil when Christ says I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not be able to stop it like the devil will say uh-oh. 
because experiencing God releases the power of biblical truth and the Spirit will take you where you need to be as you apply what you hear. You know, I'm an avid outdoorsman. I've been drawn, I've been drawn in the moose draw five times. Three times, twice here I was pastoring, twice in the five years that I've been just home, and uh, one time in another church, it's like, wow, I'm just like, this is great. I love it. Thank you, Jesus. And uh, I got a friend back there, Roger. He was in a tree stand, and it was the, one of the worst days. It was torrential rain. The rain was going sideways. We're up there in a tree, and I'm just laughing because it was just like rain is blowing up my rain gear. I see Steve back there. Steve was at Brunswick Street, Pastor Steve, good friend of mine. He was out there one day, and just like it was just like how beautiful it is to just enjoy God's creation. You know how many sermons I've written in the fall, deer hunting, with my back against a tree? Bible in my pocket, now on my phone, and a scratch pad. Some of the best sermons I've ever written. Yeah, that's right, and I just like, this is wonderful being out in God's creation. So, like, there was essential education on a movie and way back in, when the kids started uh, spending time out in the woods. Uh, our youngest, uh, Elijah, uh, he could probably tell you, what was the movie that we always used to watch before hunting season? I'm not sure if I should put him on. It was called The Edge. Anthony Hopkins, Alec Baldwin, Al McPherson, and Bart the Bear. And uh, it, was about, it was about a book-smart billionaire who accidentally has his plane crashed in the wilderness, and he and Alec, his assistant, Alex Baldwin, they need, they've got a deteriorating relationship, and they need to survive in the wilderness while the bear, grizzly bear, tries to eat them, okay? And there's all sorts of practical advice there, uh, like the Boy Scout motto, be prepared, they weren't. But the book smart billionaire had read all this stuff, and he only survives because he recalls what it is that he read, and he starts to apply it. And I thought to myself, you know, wow, if that's not a parable of the church, we wonder why, like, we're out in the wilderness when, and we are in a war, a wilderness. And we wonder, like, why is there so little victory? Why is there so little, like, just, I'm never getting to where I like to be. Because you know, and, and really it's like this. There are lots of believers, there are two kinds of believers. Believers who just serve Jesus for the information and believers who serve Jesus for the transformation. There are people who, like it says to James, they're just hearers, hearers of the word. And we are cautioned over and over, don't just eat. Don't just hear. Don't just learn. You've got to apply it. And this is what happens in the movie. And 
Whether his application of what he knows works, you're going to have to watch the movie on your own. But the same is true for whether you survive what's coming. And the scriptures, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, it's going to get worse before it gets better. And your level of victory determines, is determined by your level of how you allow the word of God to be transformed into your life. Because experiencing God releases the power of biblical truth into your life. And biblical truth, Jesus says, you get freedom. It sets us free. Three truths from this particular text. I'll go through them one at a time. The first truth, fundamental really lays the foundation like a triangle for getting to the other truths that are at the apex. The truth about humility before God. The truth about humility, the truth about God's holiness, it says this, above him were seraphs, flaming ones, is the Hebrew translation. Each with six wings, Two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they were covered their feet. With two, they were flying. Uh, they were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. I called Dave earlier this week, and I said, Dave, I'm thinking I'm going to go in this direction. Completely told, told, threw that sermon away, wrote a different one. This is all new. Wrote a different, different one, and the different one was based on this particular text. And here Dave comes along and sings holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. What is it full of? It's filled with the holy, holy, holiness of God. I wrote this particular statement down because I believe it was right from the Lord. There is no other truth like that particular statement. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. As a matter of fact, this sentence may be the Bible's most important statement about God. Declared by the seraphs, it sums up the totality of God's character and his being into one word, repeated three times. Now, on your computer, you can bold, you can italicize, you can underline, but in the Hebrew, if they wanted to emphasize something that was really, really important, they just repeated it. And there is no other word in Scripture that is repeated like this. All of what God is, all of, that, all of his character, all of his essence comes down to one word, holy. The word holy means separate, distinct. I am the Lord and there is no other. There aren't other small lords, there aren't other small gods. There, there is no other God. I am the Lord, the scriptures say, of our Savior. And that essence of who he is is described in the word holy. And the Bible wants us to know that it's really, really important. So let's say it a second time. And let's say it a third time. He is distinct. He is utterly, completely, 
totally in a category by himself. What kind of response did Isaiah have? What kind of response do the angels have? God is so holy, he is so distinct that the flaming ones, these angels, they cannot look upon him. They cannot expose themselves to him and they cover their bodies. But all they could do is just fly around declaring this most important statement, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty, his holiness, and they respond with humility. And then Isaiah responds himself. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined. For what I see and I compare it to me destroys me. Perhaps one of the greatest characters that you could demonstrate equal perhaps to love is your humility. Philippians chapter 2 says we should have the same attitude as Jesus who being very God did not consider his equality in his earthly ministry so they could demonstrate it to us. His equality with God, something to be grasped, something to be used for his own advantage. Humility. God is holy. We are not. Therefore, we need to respond to him. We need to respond to one another. And so what do we do? When God is moving in our lives, we stay glued to our seats. That is not humility. When the Holy Spirit, who is God, is at work, or he says to us, I need you to speak, Humility is not keeping your mouth shut. And humility impacts how we relate to God, to his mission, humility. And we think we've got something to hide. We think that we've got something to lose by being obedient to a proper response of humility. This is perhaps the most important principle. But then there's another. The truth of forgiveness before God's Sacrifice. It says, Isaiah says, Woe to me, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand. Notice it's not belonging to the angel, and that it is initiated by the work of God. He, he couldn't touch it. He couldn't touch it. He flew to me with a live coal in his, in his hand, which he had taken with tongs. He couldn't touch it. And he placed that live coal on Isaiah's lips, and the angel doesn't leave it up to interpretation as to what it means. He said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. There's a truth about forgiveness before God's sacrifice. What that means is Isaiah realized he had a problem, a sin problem, and God in his mercy provides a solution to that problem. The coal from the altar, the coal from the brazen altar symbolizes three things. 
sacrifice, the righteous dying for the unrighteous, forgiveness, the second thing, and cleansing. Do you know that when God applies the sacrifice of his son to you, you are cleansed from your past? We assume that. Your present sin, you may be in sin, and you're even your future, future sins. It's, it's, it's just an amazing thing. And, but there's a choice that needs to be made. The choice is what do you do with what it is that you've been taught related to the cross? A sacrifice, the symbol of God's mercy to you. What are you doing with it? And what are you sharing about it to people who do not yet know Jesus? The final truth that will transform your life that will bring God close in experience is the truth of serving before God's call. Having understood his position, and that's what holiness does, it puts us in our proper perspective uh, before God. We are under God. We sometimes think, you know, it's me, palsy, wowsy, Jesus. It's, you know, let me just walk with Jesus because he's my pal. No, he's God. He's holy. He's above me. And I'm like, how far away from God's holiness do you think we are as sinners? Like, I'm not sure if you could put a mathematical number on that. I'm not sure if you could put a measurement there. But there is a response of holiness. And then, having understood my position before a holy God, there is a response I make to the sacrifice that he offers to me and the freedom that he offers. And then finally, there's having been saved, I'm saved to what? Serve. The truth of serving before God's call. Then I heard the voice of God's call, the Lord saying, whom shall I send? And if you're saved, you should have heard that call. And we're not talking about being called to the ministry. We're just being called to something that God has asked you and for which you have been prepared to do. Who will go for us? And I said, here I am, send me. It's never about God's ability, it's about our availability. The band's gonna come in just a few moments before we celebrate communion, but I want to finish with this story about the power of God's word. You know, someone said that just enough truth and just enough word, let me get it right. Not enough truth not enough truth and too much spirit, you blow up. Too much spirit and not enough word, you... Too much word. Thank you, my friend, my lifelong friend, because I learned it from her mother, the, my mentor. 
Pastor Fred and Mark Smith. Tell me, Debbie, what is it? Grow up. Yeah. Give Debbie a hand. Yes. See, that's what you need. So uh, that's what, yeah. So. That's, when, that's what happens when you go off notes. So the closing story before we do our communion is You could train an elephant, 10 tons, to be held by a tiny little chain. And we, and that happens by training that baby elephant from a baby. You chain them to a post and to a small little chain that in reality they can't break from. And as that elephant grows, there's a mindset that it takes on about that teeny tiny little chain that I can't be free. And without Bible application, we're just like that elephant. We may be able to get free, but we don't know it because we're living lies in our minds. And when we apply the second principle that experiencing God takes the word of God and transforms us with life-giving truth, we can be set free in ways that we never thought possible. That is the work of the Spirit, and that is normal Christianity. I'm going to ask Kim if she could come, and I'm going to close in a, in a prayer but it is a prayer of confession because the Bible says prepare your hearts before the Lord in prayer and then Kim will give an explanation and then we'll have communion together and close our service. Father, thank you for these two principles about experiencing God. We ask, Lord, that as we enter into the remembrance of your Son, by your Spirit, we ask that you would bring us near. Bring us near to that reality so that we can properly appreciate, properly remember what it is that you're doing. We thank you for our brothers and sisters online. And Lord, as they grab some juice, as they grab some bread, may they too remember. I ask that in Jesus' name that you would forgive us of our sins so that we can walk before you and we can go to the cross, 1 John 1, 9, confess our sin in our minds and you will cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that we can remember with a pure heart. Bless us now and bless Kim as she shares. Amen.